It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This week on the show, we have the writer of the phenomenal award-winning Senna, Manish Pandey. Manish talks to us about the creation of the incredible documentary and his latest project working with Bernie Eccleston. Oh, Hello, my name is Ron Mylander, and you're listening to the Formula Birds podcast. Hi, I'm Rosanna Tennant, and you are listening to the incredible Cut to the Race podcast. Hi, I'm Jordan King, and you're listening to the Formula Nerds podcast. Hi, I'm Crofty. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out, and away we go! Welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. We are here today with a very special guest, but before I introduce him, we have Sam. How are you? I'm very, very good, thank you, Ollie. It's nice to see you. It's been a while. How are you? It has been a while. I'm, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Uh, James, how are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Uh, it's, yeah, it's great to be back. It is, and we are back with, like I said, a very special guest. We have writer and director and writer of the BAFTA award-winning Senna, Manish Pandey, how are you today? Very well. Happy New Year all. Happy New Year to you too. Did you did you have a nice break? I know it's been very busy for you recently, hasn't it? I um, actually got out to the Caribbean. My um, wife and her parents have uh, had a home there for sort of half a century. So uh, we tend to go at Christmas and at um, we tend to go at Christmas and Easter. Uh, you can imagine we all had the. Um, the pandemic so we weren't able to see them for a while they're, they're pretty elderly now it was wonderful being out there the only thing was um lucky came out on uh, discovery on the 27th so there was a bit of toing and froing with the um streamer and you know just twitter watching and stuff like that it would have been nicer i think if it had come out in the new year but so did, did you start as an F1 fan and then get into filmmaking or was it the other way around? No, very much that way around. I, um, I was um, I was nuts about Formula One actually from, um, I think 
you know, I can't, can't give you the exact moment, which is unusual for me, but somewhere between 11 and 13, I really fell in love with it. So that's between 1978 and 1980. And um, I, uh, I mean, I, you know, I'm ashamed to say it in some ways. No, but I mean, I was a massive PK fan before um, Senna. There was something about the Brazilians. I think I was in love with the Brazilian football team. And in those days, if you remember, Formula One, the broadcasts would start about two minutes before the race and finish literally when the flag went down. So um, you had to identify characters in very snatched moments. And um, if you look at PK, I, I mean, before he was at Williams and before he said, you know, some pretty big and controversial things, um, there, there was a Monaco that was washed out and he was the one with the little hello mum sign. And uh, when you'd read about him, he was always the kind of practical joker and it was in the magazines. And, you know, I think when you're a kid, it's absolutely fantastic to um, to fall over a character. And if, if you just think about the restricted TV coverage, even when I was at university, there was no, um, there was no, qualifying there were no free practice shown on um, tv so we used to actually phone something i think it was some something called the grand prix hotline i used to phone them up on uh, a saturday to find out who was in pole position because there was no internet so you know what did you do did you buy your sunday times or your you know observer on a sunday morning to find out who's on pole i think if you're a massive senna fan actually what you do you phone the Grand Prix hotline. I don't know what it was. It was like two quid a minute. Oh my god! That's like twenty pounds a minute now. But it was brilliant. It was like the Ed and Senna show because you'd phone up and Senna's on pole. <laughs> it was, uh, but you know, massive, massive fan. I've never heard in all my time of the Grand Prix hotline, and I actually was just thinking that's a great name for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't copyrighted it, so that's for sure. Um, so you have mentioned Senna, but. This was an incredible documentary, obviously, that, that, that you wrote about the, the man himself. And how, managed did this project actually come around? How did you get involved with it? So I actually am a doctor. I trained, uh, was training to be an orthopedic surgeon, but I've always been nuts about film, always, always, always. And I think, to be honest, film and television um, were always my true passions. And I think, you know, Good student, Indian origin. <laughs> Dad was a doctor. Stepmother, the doctor. Aunt's a doctor. My sister's a doctor. I think you know. It, it's funny. I took a year off. I'm looking back at it, and I, I'm I tend to be quite a decisive person. You know, make a decision, like kind of go for it. And uh, looking back at it, I guess you would argue I was I was really at a fork. I think my soul was saying done your A-levels now, what do you want to do with your life? And kind of my brain was saying, oh, you must be a doctor. And um, so I used to write. And when I came to do my clinical studies, um, a really good friend of mine who was a um, year four medical student, he, his partner was an agent and uh, he read a script that I'd written. And, you know, there was no badgering from me, but I think I was too shy about it. But uh, he got back to me and said, oh, this is really very good. Where did you go to film school or did you take some courses? And actually, I just picked up three books and read them. And I think here's the thing about film scripts, which I think a lot of people don't 
really understand. I think what you've got to be is really, really, it sounds obvious, but you've got to be very visual. And if you can see what you're writing, if you can just hear the words, that's kind of all you need to do. And I know that sounds really noddy, but I think that we get taught to write in prose. That's kind of how it works. It's not that I can't. It's just that um, there is something peculiar, I think, about good, you know, I'm putting myself in that category, maybe I shouldn't, but there is something about good script writers they see, and you can see that they see. And there is a format and there's a structure, and it's about 100 years old. And, you know, I trained as a scientist, I'm quite into formats and structure, so that wasn't hard. But what happened was he, he picked up the script. It um, didn't do anything, but I had an agent. And then uh, I wrote totally on spec this sort of um outline for an indian version of pride and prejudice not the one that you've seen but um that did get picked up and it got picked up because mm. of a fortuitous meeting i had with a film director literally on the street one day we kind of became friends it was shaker kapoor and he just made a film called elizabeth with kate blanchett it launched her career and Shaker used to read scripts for him. So he used to get these three scripts a day, kind of DHL'd from Hollywood, and they'd have the CAA label on. You know, I'd feel like a really famous film producer when I was actually just reading these scripts. And um, what I realised was, yeah, I could do it. And um, so I left him with this outline, and to cut a very long story short, he showed it to Working Title Films, with whom he'd done Elizabeth. And um, I met their kind of senior producer who'd just come off the success of Billy Elliot, and she loved it. And so I developed the project with her for a year. And I thought, hooray, when she called me up and said, we're going to make this film. And then Gorinda Chada announced that she was doing something called Bride and Prejudice. So my story was dead, but I got to marry my producer. Which is great. <laughs> oh, wow. I'd always make that trade. Yeah. And um, I think the spin is... She'd worked with James Gay Reese, who had just done a zombie movie called Long Time Dead. And James had an idea, this was 2004, having read a bunch of um, biographies of the death of Senna. It was the 10th anniversary. And James had an idea to make a, a documentary on the death of Senna. And my wife said, well, I think before you do anything, James, have a chat with my husband because he's a uh, bit of a stato, but also he is a proper script writer. So I remember I met James in his offices um, on Knoll Street in Soho, and uh, I said, look, I mean, what he'd written was very powerful. Um, but with scripts, scripts are actually, in a way, they're horribly transparent. Your motivations are very clear. So if you write a script where when you get to the end of the first act, so about a quarter of the way through the project, things start going horribly wrong until someone dies, that is really the format of a tragedy. And that's basically what his outline looked like to me. It was three days at Imola. It was this superstar arrives, but it is just kind of in this moment, which is, which is horrific. And you know where it's going to go, don't you, very quickly. One could actually argue that it has an even more extreme structure than that because Senna will reach his zenith in that story in about 10 minutes. And then what's going to happen is over the next 90 minutes, you're going to see him die you know, blow by blow. And I just said to him, look, it's very powerful, but I just don't think that's who he was. And to really understand his death, you have to understand his life. And you can't really do that 
Yeah. In a short, but I mean, his achievements were so great. And look, why were we all shocked by Senna's death? Because it was so tragic and so sudden, and because the prequel were two really unsatisfying races after a kind of magic season, frankly. So he said, well, what, what do you think we should do? You know, it'd be fair to James. He's very open about it. And I said, look, let, let's tell the story of his life. And, of course, the last act is going to be his death. And so I went off. I, um, you know, worked on an outline. Um, they all loved it. Eric Fellner, the co-chairman of Working Title, big petrol head himself and you know i you know in retrospect i always feel really bad about this i don't think i ever gave eric his his due i mean we were way late with senna we were i mean insanely probably over budget in the end but the truth is eric always backed us with the studio always backed and left us alone so it wasn't like we were getting you know huge packages of studio notes trying to dilute that message but the film that you see is very true to the very early vision so what happens is in the first act Senna goes from being just this helmet at Monaco in the pouring rain which is always a great way to start it to becoming world champion so he reaches that very quickly and then you're kind of going well, well what's the story now well the story that's when you got the target on your back that's when it says kick me you know, on your bum. And that's when the conflict really starts. And then by the time you get to Imola, you're in a very different place. You're with this kind of godlike figure. And you see how quickly it unravels, yet slowly. I mean, it's 20, we spend almost 20 minutes on that third act. It's more than 20 minutes on that third act. And um, I think the third act works, not because because he dies, but because how how much you feel for him as a human being. And I, I, I remember, you know, when we were on our kind of award run, and it was a run, it was amazing. We turn up, everyone always win. And um, I remember the very first time Asif, you know, with this I mean, wonderful vision, you know, really came from a feature film background and frankly stopped that film being a documentary. You know, I think if anybody lent those feature film eyes to it it was asset it was my first you know movie you know why would i know but um i remember he shoved me forward on uh stage and said say something you know writers never <laughs> get to say anything but what was great was the very first time i could say something i said you know the biggest joy for me about this project is that whenever i used to say oh i really liked it and saying that they say oh that driver who died Oh, wasn't he the driver who died at that? And then they'd sort of fumble to try to remember. And actually, you know, he's remembered for his life now after that. And come on, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that, does it? Not if you really love someone and, you know, they really were your hero. And that is, he's remembered as much now, I think, for having his dice with Prost or, or whatever, as he is for the tragedy of his death. Oh, completely. And I, I feel for for me as well, having been you know, born around that time, I knew of Prost. I grew up, you know, an F1 fan. Uh, sorry, I knew of Senna. Uh, I grew up an F1 fan, but I think it brought Senna to a whole new generation, and it brought his. It really brought his life, you know, to life in that sense uh, for them. And so, on that, how much kind of responsibility did you feel? telling his story, given that he, uh, you know, very sadly can't be, or couldn't be there to tell his story himself? Uh, it's a good question. And uh, 
I mean, the simplest answer is this, that to get to tell Senna's story, you had to go through his family and through the Ethan Senna Foundation. And it took us a long time, even after we'd make our, made our first contact, contact, to go and see Viviani. And uh, I went to Brazil, and I went with James, and we presented, or I presented, a 40-minute um, slideshow with music uh, telling the story of his life and death. And in it, actually, I remember, I mean, I, we had some, not graphic, but we had photos of the accident, photos of the aftermath, photos of the funeral. But I gleaned, you know, from the internet and put music on, and I narrated, basically. And um, she burst into tears, as did everybody else, and they said, we're making this film with you. And I think you'd be some kind of weird psychopath if you didn't feel an enormous sense of responsibility. But I think, I don't know, I don't know the three of you, but I guess if we get to know each other for a bit, you realise that, you know, hopefully I do put, you know, my money where my mouth is. We don't do anything in terms of shortcuts. It's taken us three years to make Lucky, just as it took us almost six from the moment we started on Senna to when it was finished. Because there are no shortcuts, I don't think, in doing in doing the stuff, I'm not a very, you know, I wouldn't describe myself as a very quick filmmaker. I mean, I'm not at all. It's quite deliberate. We sit and think and, you know, there are lots of ways you can interpret any scenes. I mean, one thing I found quite painful about Senna in retrospect was Prost felt so horrifically done by. And um, Motorsport magazine have interestingly just after Lucky sort of said that Lucky was a chance to make my position more clear on it. And what I would say is this, that um, I think any attempt to make Prost a two-dimensional villain, um, it, it, it wasn't some sort of intentional thing. I think we were very careful about how we ended it. We had, I think it was seven beats of reconciliation. And I'll give you a, a tiny example. In, in the story, Prost says of Senna, Ayrton thinks that he can't be killed because he believes in God and all of these things. And I think that's very dangerous for the other drivers, you know. But who is the only person who crosses themselves at Senna's funeral? It's Prost. <laughs> it's not a random shot, you know. Yeah. Shots of hundreds of people at that funeral. But it's a really poignant shot. And it's it's there because... What you, what I think I was trying to say is that in Formula One, like in most really big battles in life, where you have extreme personalities, and just because Alain's a bit more affable and looks like he's a bit more cuddly, I mean, I wouldn't believe it. You should meet him now. He's 54 kilos. He could still probably beat Lance Armstrong in the Tour de France. I mean, he's lean, he's strong, he's hyper-intelligent. And I'm really looking forward to to the documentary that Canal Plus is doing um, of his, but they, he wasn't as cuddly a character. He, he was just brilliant on camera. And I think Ayrton was brilliant on camera in his own way, but it was hammer and tongs between them. And it was sort of like last man standing <laughs> wins. And um, I, in my mind, there is no doubt that in 1989, Alan took contact um, you know, racing. He felt Senna had been doing it for years, but he he basically drove Senna off the track in Suzuka. I think Senna could have dealt with that had it not been for the fact that he was disqualified for that. And um, 
I'm I'm not proud or happy of what 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 Ayrton did in in 1990. I think at a visceral level, yes, of course you punch the air and go, good, you know, in a good two-dimensional cartoon baddie way, go, great, you got him back. <laughs> but the truth is, you know, Ron Dennis said it, you can see from the body language, he's awkward. What does he say about it in 1991 that says 1990 was a disgraceful championship? And he's acknowledging his, his blame. And um, so what I would say is, you know, I think, there's a huge amount of responsibility. There's a lot more nuance in this stuff than, than may appear. And I, I, you know, and I hope lucky it's the same thing. You can view it from beginning to end as a sort of two-dimensional cartoon. But if you want to squint and look at the captions and look at the order in which we put things, it's all there. You just have to work a little harder than, you know, than maybe Top Gun too. Yeah, I mean, Prost saw himself as as the villain of the piece, didn't he? Um, yeah. But I think for me watching it, if, if it were anyone, then it were Jean-Marie Ballest, rather. I mean, he he is the, the pantomime villain incarnate. You know, Jean-Marie, Bernie told me something quite clever, quite telling about him. Um, and actually, his uh, Ballest's background is in publishing, you know, he'd made a fortune in publishing in France. And so he knew how to use the media. He really knew how to use the media. And in Lucky, you meet Bales for the first time in episode two, well before Bernie meets him. And there's a brilliant interview he gives. And if you watch it really carefully, you realize just how clever this man is. He says, I have nothing against the British, except perhaps that they burnt Joan of Arc, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think the thing about him is he knows exactly what copy that's going to get, doesn't he? Yeah. You know, it's not random. The best decision is my decision. In other words, I don't think he was ever a buffoon. I think he knew exactly how he came across and how he wanted to come across. And the kind of, you know, that sort of dictator, you know, uh, it, it's what he wanted to be. And if you read the books on that period, um, you know, whether you read Lovell or Susan Watkins or you read um, Tom Bauer's book or you know, whoever's book, you, what you realise is that, you know, that kind of vanity, and it is a kind of vanity, you, you know, also makes you quite vulnerable. You know, he loved his hotel rooms. He liked to have the French flag and an FIA flag, you know, fluttering on his car, but it made him vulnerable because... You know, when you make statements like that, people suss you out, don't they? And I think Bernie had endless fun with Balestre. I mean, endless fun with him. And he's very French, and I can say that because I live in Paris. Uh, <laughs> but he, uh, I think he did favour Prost. I, I don't th- I don't know if that's really up for debate, to be honest. I mean, he, he changed the <laughs> rules after 1984, right? To, to Because Prost lost by Lauda, he introduced the best of 11, which then ironically ended up meaning that Ayrton won 1988. So, you know, James, you say that, right? So I, I love the fact that you pointed that out. And um, there's, a, um, there's a wonderful interview that we couldn't get into Senna because it would have been too complicated explaining the first, you know, best of 11 rule and stuff. But um, at the end of 88... It, in Australia, which Prost wins, not Senna. Uh, so Prost has a last ever turbocharged victory. You know, he can go go to bed with that one. And uh, he gives this interview and he says, um, you know, normally at the end of the season, you add up all the points 
and the person with the most points is the world champion, but not this year. But I've got no problem with the fact that Ayrton's the champion. And it's <laughs> classic pros. It's brilliant. It's kind of brilliant because he's saying a quirk of, you know, the counting, but quirk of the point system this year has robbed me, but I'm cool with it, okay? And actually, you're exactly right. Alain won seven races, Nicky won five in 1984, and suddenly we had a best of <laughs> rules. And what I, One other myth, I think, about Senna came out in 88 after that. Um, I'm not saying Prost started it, but I'm, I'm sure he didn't refute it, and it was that... Um, Everybody always said that Senna was the fastest driver, but the Prost was the best driver. See, I think that's nonsense. And um, what happened was in 88, they realized they had, I mean, way the dominant car. So it was actually quite possible they realized after testing that they would win all 16 races. You know, they knew they were three seconds faster than anything else. And yes, Ferrari kind of sort of maybe caught up a bit in that season, but it was a two-class year and they were at the top of their class. So the corollary of that is if we could win all 16 races, you do realize therefore the first to nine is world champion, right? So the season itself to become the world champion was a binary season. It was win nine and you're champion, win eight, and you're almost champion, right? It's obvious. But the clever spin on that is to make it look like that fast but dangerous kid from Sao Paulo doesn't know what he's doing and only races to win rather than kind of, you know, maximizes. But of course, Senna knew. <laughs> he would have known exactly what Frost knew. First to nine becomes mm -hmm. world champion. And, and there's another lovely mirror, isn't there? If you look at 84, Alain Prost not only wins more races than Nicky Lauda, but he outqualifies him day in, day out. But Lauda spends his time realizing, well, I'm not going to beat this guy in qualifying, but I've got a bloody good chance if I really set my car up properly of beating him in the race. So in those days, it was fantastic. I mean, they could overtake. I remember Prost was usually very happy to qualify in the top six because he would smile and say, I'm really well set up for the race. And that, by the way, is why Bernie, I think, really rates Prost as the greatest of all time. And I, I don't agree with Bernie. A few times I don't. But um, he, he rates Prost as the best because Bernie was actually running a team at the time. He wasn't just kind of running the business of Formula One and doing the big media deals and the big sponsorship deals. Of course, he was doing all of that. He was commercializing Formula One, but he really was running Bravo, you know, at whatever level. And like, can you just imagine coming in on a Monday morning, if you're burning, you kind of drive to Chessington, you go inside, and then you get this guy saying, bloody Prost beat us again. How did he do it this time? He did it because he had a better set. He picked these tires. He did this with his fuel. Of course, you're going to turn around and think this is the greatest driver in history because he's just beating you day in, day out. And I think Bernie's got enormous admiration for him. And, you know, the way that Brabham won in 81 was a bit cheeky with their clever suspension. The way that they took it back in 83 with their clever fuel was just as cheeky. 
and you know, and, and, and I imagine, you know, somewhere in Bernie's mind, he's sort of thinking, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have beaten him in '83. Maybe that was a bit cheeky. But you know, that that's the Formula One these guys created. And, and by the way, you're seeing it now. Look at the arguments over the cost cap, where they see a chink in another team's armor. They are in there. You know, the biggest wedge they can drive. That's why we love this sport. I mean, before, before I do want to talk about obviously Lucky, uh, and I want to also ask a few questions on on the heroes, which I found just fascinating. But um, on the center film, did you manage anticipate the success of this? Now, I mean, I've watched it, and I'm being I'm being honest, not just because you're here. I'm being honest with you. I probably watched it five or six times, um, and I know James, you've watched it many times as well. I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it, if I'm honest with you. And why do you think it was so successful to even? Uh, non-F1 fans, you know, it really, this was, this, this broke records, didn't it? Yeah, so, I mean, I think really one reason, Santa, <laughs> really just as simple as that. We could have made that film, and we could have made the film, and it would have been just that good, technically, and it could have had the same score from Antonio and so on, but... He's so charismatic. It's a bit like asking me, why do you think Formula One was such a massive success between 1985 and 1993? It's You meet these people sometimes and they just make you connect with them. And I always said about him, the thing about Senna was whether you're a Formula One fan or not, whether you're a Senna fan or not, he made you feel. You just feel you know, you look into those eyes and you see that fury or, you know, whether you, what did, you know, some Mansell found, I can't remember. I, I now remember I did. My best friend's mother, who, uh, you know, Auntie Valerie, I call her. She, I mean, she never swears, okay? She never gets cross. But I do remember, I think it was Belgium 87. Um, you know, I was 19 at the time and uh, he had this accident and she, she came and she was quite a Mansell fan, you know, because Nigel was going to win it for Britain and all the rest of it. Remember Auntie Violet coming and going, that Senna's a real shit. <laughs> <laughs> Auntie Val. <laughs> exactly. Who never swears. And she, you, you know, we're talking about a really lovely country living middle-aged English woman, just really cross with Senna. <laughs> so, you know, I... What we knew we had to do was get his story into that brilliant three-act paradigm. Once we, the archive's so gorgeous, the music's so gorgeous, to some extent, you know, we do the technical stuff, which we should do. It's what we're paid to do. And, you know, we're good filmmakers. But when you have a superstar like that, it's like giving him the car. Give him the car and he's going to win the championship for you. We, that's all we did with the film. We just gave him the film. He totally won it for us. I do have one more question on Senna before we, we move on, as hard as it is to ever move on from him. Uh, so, I, I mean, I went down a, a real rabbit hole and tried to investigate the hypotheticals of what could have happened if if Imola 94 hadn't happened. Uh, Sam's nodding because he, he's ready. This is my favourite piece that we've ever done on the, on the website. So, yeah. Yes. I, re- I highly recommend my own my own article. Please do go to formulaners.com and, and read it. Uh, but it's <laughs> I basically try to figure out all the hypotheticals and how everyone performed and where which driver would have gone where to see what the rest of Suri- uh, what the rest of, how the rest of Senna's career would have played out. Uh, so, what is your your personal belief on how you think things could have gone if uh, if Imola '94 had ended differently? 
Um, so my last allowed to ask a supplementary question, which is, uh, it, are Benetton found guilty of cheating? Do they have to take off some systems um, in that year? Or I, do can, they I can feel a massively in? long conversation coming here <laughs> <laughs> between <laughs> pure F1 yes. fans. <laughs> so are you asking me, you know, um, Benetton don't basically change their car so do Williams catch them up and does Senna, does Senna beat him that season? And then what happens? Is that what you're asking me? Yeah, I mean, just let's say, yeah, Ayrton survived Imola. And then yeah. wherever you think that all the ramifications yeah. and permutations would have ended up, whether he yeah, would have so, got Without making this uh, four-hour podcast, so I have actually done this. <laughs> I've done this myself, and I've done this myself okay. many, many times. I'm much older than you as well. And I watched that live, and, uh, you know, I've... I've calculated, I think I've missed 13 races now since I was 14 years old. So, you know, I've watched them all too. Um, so one, uh, no, Ayrton would not have won the 94 championship. Wouldn't have done it. It was just too far behind. If he'd, You're saying if he'd survived. So he has the accident. He gets out of the car. He can't believe what's happened. Um, the best case scenario is there's a Nelson Piquet scenario, which is he's badly concussed. Professor Sid Watkins tells him, "Your, uh, I can tell you, Prof would have scanned him. And, uh, and Prof and I, by the way, became really good friends during the making. So that's the one big thing I take away from that film. You know, I own that. I became friends with uh, literally the coolest doctor ever. And uh, I've met a few. So Michael would have been 30 points ahead. Um, would Max Mosley in the FIA have sussed the car? Well, maybe, maybe not. The Williams needed quite a lot of sorting because it was the most dependent car. I think I think Michael probably would have just won the championship. And I think if you analyse the 84, 94 season as it stands, you realise Michael is effectively excluded from four races. So he had a 12-race championship. Damon had a 16-race championship. Yes, Damon got it to within a point. But of those four races, basically, Damon won them all. So, um, you know, that was why, why we got a 40-point swing. I don't think there was any way there was going to be a 30-point swing. Um, as I said, unless the Benetton was radically um, transformed, you know, suddenly it started to become a, a bit of a loser car. And unless Damon, you know, was just getting number twos, all, you know, second places in every race. So they were demoting Michael. It was a 10-6-4 championship in those days, wasn't it? So Michael would have had to lose basically six points a race for five races. So Williams had to go from a ridiculous position to getting five one-twos with Senna winning them all for Senna and Michael to even be equal. I, you know, I've looked at it, but... I've got a good answer to this because we're going to be working with Luca Montezemolo, I hope, in the future. And I spent a bit of time with Luca. And he told me that um, before Senna did his Carrara bike launch, they had dinner at his home in Bologna. And he has got the most beautiful house you've ever been to in your life. And he said that um, Senna really wanted to come to Ferrari. 
I mean, really wanted it. And he said that obviously that Ferrari seat was available for 96. Um, they were also looking at the contract because this is what they do in Formula One. Um, actually, Bernie has a lovely thing to say about contracts. He says that if you really make your deals on the basis of contracts, you don't make deals. He said you make deals and the contracts follow because the thing about contracts are as soon as the ink is dry on a contract, lawyers are looking for ways to get around it. So they were looking at his Williams contract anyway, as any good team should, to see is there a way to get Senna into a Ferrari even earlier? Maybe, maybe. And we mustn't forget who built the 94 Ferrari. It was no other loser than John Barnard, the greatest designer probably there was, you know? At that time, he was certainly ahead of Adrian Newey, wasn't he? Or they would have been about about equal, wouldn't they? I mean, you're talking about two gods of design. So, uh, you know, in my mind, would Senna have gone to Ferrari? I think he probably would. I think he wanted his title back, so I think he would have got it back in 95. And I think he would have gone to Ferrari for 96. And I think Bernie would have liked that too. You know, sometimes somebody tweeted that. What was it called? Is it called the 312, 412T4, wasn't it? The the, the 94 Ferrari. Somebody tweeted, because when that first came out, such a beautiful looking car with those sort of knacker ducks on the side pods and things. Someone tweeted a picture of that car with a Senna helmet. You know, they'd obviously just matted up and sometimes you just look at something and it's so perfect it just makes your heart stop and I just wonder whether maybe you know maybe that's why it didn't happen because it just would have been just a bit too much heaven on earth to have seen Senna in a Ferrari I mean it, it's it's always it's always a fascinating conversation anything to do with Senna and especially I mean I, I've 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 read James's article obviously so many different things could have happened I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. I, I wanted to talk to you about heroes. Now, this is something not not as as well known um, as Senna, but this is a really original documentary, and I don't think I've ever really seen anything like it before. Now, can you just talk to us about 
how you came up with this concept. Essentially, you sit four very good drivers in a room, and to the to the viewer, it looks like you leave them to it. After Senna, I went down a bit of a cul-de-sac trying to get a Ferrari feature film made, set in 57 and 58. And we got quite close, and then it didn't happen. So I vanished for, actually it was more than three years. It was almost four years. And I, I'm a dog with a bone, and I just wouldn't accept no. My much wiser wife was, uh, you got to let it go, got to let it go. Um, so after that, actually, we set up the first behind-the-scenes Formula One OTT show, made um, Grand Prix driver with McLaren and we were off and running and it was all looking very, very good. But um, the new owners of Formula One actually had other plans. And so Drive to Survive was born and we had to end our show early. And um, the people at Motorsport Network um, gave me a call and said, look, we really love the way that you work. And we just think, you know, you obviously know what you're doing. Um, We'd love to commission to make a film. And I said, okay. And there were some rules. Can't be about one person. It can't be about one discipline in motor racing because the motorsport network is much bigger than that. You know, they, for them, Formula One, of course, it's a vanguard sport, is the biggest sport, but rallying is important. Um, endurance is important. And so it couldn't be about one person, couldn't be about one discipline. And it really needed to showcase the values of motorsport, you know, why is it that we watch it? What are these common things that that drivers, that every discipline in, in, in motorsport kind of has? And <clears throat> I went away and bless them. I mean, they gave me carte blanche beyond that. Um, and they, so I went away and had to think about it. And I thought, you know what? I, one thing that I really thought broke great ground with Senna, apart from the use of archive as feature material, was the fact that we didn't have talking heads. And um, I've always disliked straight talking heads, because I think you can be very lazy, which I mean, or you can be brilliant, whichever way you want to look at it. But intercutting talking heads for me is, first of all, it's just not particularly cinematic. It's very news, I think. It's also very obvious. You know, you can get a guy saying A plus B equals C, and then you get another guy going, no, it doesn't, it equals D. Then you go back to the first one, you go, no, it doesn't equal so It's a really in-your-face way of telling stories. And the editorial, the editorial kind of spin then becomes down to who's the cleverest editor, can you trip someone into saying something? Can you use something out of context? It, these are all tricks in documentary filmmaking. And I, to be honest, I just, I, I, a lot of the reason why I hate modern, a lot of modern news media, and I'm talking about mainstream news now, Newsnight, I thought, used to be particularly bad culprits, is that they make little entertainment pieces. They don't make... They don't really tell you the news. In a way, I think the best way to tell the news is have someone in a dark grey suit or a dark grey shirt being really boring, reading out the facts. The moment you start putting music on and and, and all the rest of it, you're basically making entertainment. I, I'll go off on another tangent. So Brexit, I don't know if you're for it or against it, whatever your position was, we certainly know that probably out of every 100 economists 
three or four thought it would be very good for the country or could be good for the country if handled the right way. And somewhere between 96 and 97 thought it was a bad idea. So if you're really telling the news as it was, and you had two economists on every single day, it would be about one in 30 of those encounters that you would put on somebody who's pro-regular. It's just how, that they're just the raw numbers, right? So, um, oh, sorry, three times in 50 days. So I get my maths right. But the point is that with heroes, what I realized was I'm just some fan. <laughs> That's the truth of it. I've driven a few fast cars, you know, on track days, like everybody else who thinks they're good. I've carted a bit, you know. You know, I trained as a doctor. I now make films. I, you know, what can I honestly ask? anyone really that isn't some cliched question about their life i mean what can i ask somebody that nigel roebuck already hasn't that you know that jenks hasn't sometime in the i mean these are gods who went to every race and yeah so i just had this thought what if we do get multiple drivers together and what if we do get them talking. Now, we'd have to structure it because if they're all talking about different topics in different ways, it would be hard to make something like that coherent. It would be really hard. But if we could broadly tell them what we were going to explore and uh, how we were going to do it, it would be drivers talking to each other. And that that's really interesting and that's that's absolutely fascinating no one's ever done it before and there's this level of respect these guys have for each other whether they're in the same era or the same discipline or not they know they know exactly how tough what they do for a living is they know exactly what the hoops are that some of them have been lucky enough to get through and others haven't. They also know that cul-de-sacs mean other opportunities. It's just how it works. So I had this idea, let's get the best people we can to do something like this in Formula One together. Let's get the best rally driver that I could think of. Let's get the best person in endurance. And then it occurred to me that to create a deeper coherence, because that list was still very long, they must have something in common. And then it really hit me. I remember it just hit me. I know what it is. Of our list, just looking through these people, these people have got Michael Schumacher in common, sometimes in a slightly tangential way, other times in a very direct way. And I thought, of course, and we can tell the story of a fifth driver by proxy. And so the idea of heroes was born. And the question was, how do you film them so that you have a coherent narrative do we stick them in a studio? Well, everyone's seen it. Could we? Should we do four lots of talking heads interviews and try to cut them? Uh, you know, where they could speak to each other, maybe like the format we've got now. And then I thought, no, I've got it. So this is a haunted house story. It's just that simple. There's one driver missing, and they're kind of in the house somewhere. And these people are going to arrive, and it's going to be a story. They're going to turn up. So how are they going to arrive? We're going to arrive in cars that tell you who they are, even before you see their faces. And they're going to spend a day and a night together. And then the next day, they're going to reflect on spending 24 hours together. And then they're going to be gone 
and maybe these four will never meet again in this way, but all of their lives are going to be changed for having had that interaction. And then <clears throat> it was so clear that um, there was so much in common. And just the key story here is actually Michelle Mouton. I really wanted Michelle Mouton to tell her story. I thought it was going to be great to have a woman, first of all. She's no ordinary woman. She also now works, you know, kind of the FIA Rally Commission. She is tough, incredibly beautiful, actually. I still think incredibly beautiful. I mean, just look at her face, her bones. I mean, you know, tough, but also somebody who's really vulnerable, has a real family story. And then I... I think it, I can't remember who it was. It might even have been Jean Todd who put us together. Because I wrote to Jean and said, like, I don't know her, you know her. Can you make an introduction? And um, it was lovely. You know, next thing I got a little email from her. And she said, look, I'm in France. I'm flying to Switzerland. I won't be available for blah, blah, blah period of time. So I said, look, I'll tell you what. Why don't I just meet you at Nice Airport? I'll fly out. Let's go and have something, you know, a couple of hours together. Let me convince you to come and do this project. And um, and I think she quite liked the commitment of that. So I, I flew out, waited a couple of hours because the way the flights work, you know, she's the one who doesn't have time. I'm the one who's got time. So I was quite happy to get there a few hours early. Um, she came. Her flight was delayed, which is a bit of luck. <laughs> and so we ended up spending three and a half hours talking about her life. <clears throat> Tons of stuff that I'd read. That's all fine. They're all facts. But the story she told absolutely floored me in her tracks was a story about her mother and that head injury that her mother got and the absolute miracle of her daughter's wedding. And that's when I realized we had a film because the other drivers the thing they all had in common were massive head injuries. And what does that have in common with the missing person in our story? It's a head injury. And that sort of touched me also as a doctor. And the impossibility of Michelle's final story about her mother's head injury, I mean, it floored me. And then it was a question of structuring it. We saw about 20 stately homes. None of them were quite right. Um, it was great fun sort of dealing with Mika. He is a total cowboy flies by the seat of his pants always pulls it off you've got his his absolute opposite is Felipe blisteringly fast driver who at the same time he's so he's so warm that boy so tough you, you know and then you know, Tom, I, I went out to see him at his home. He's, he's believe it or not, I mean, he, he he's born the day before me. And in some ways, we're quite similar characters. He's so garrulous. He's so cunningly retentive. He's so unpretentious. He's so accomplished. Uh, but you just can't tell because of, that's Tom. And their chemistry was fantastic. And then it was a question of creating these sets. And I have to tell you, it took us two and a half days to set that, the lighting up in that stately home, because the, the time factor was theirs, not ours. But to shoot it and move to the next scene and shoot it, and it was the hardest, toughest thing I've ever done. It was 48 hours. I think I slept 20 minutes. Um, Jim Wiseman, who's directed a lot of the car sequences for Top Gear, I mean, I know what I'm good at. I know what I can't do. No one can film cars like Jim. So we organized the cars. He took a whole second unit out and just 
shot the arrivals, shot the way that they were going to leave, absolutely set up the rigs properly. Um, we've got an amazing cinematographer, Robin Fox, who really cut his teeth on making Nigella, who she is. So Robin can light everything beautifully. And Robin lit this place such that you, you feel you're there with them, don't you, all the way through. And then it was a question of really structuring it. And what I would do in terms of directing is just literally get the conversation going, allow it to flow, and intervene only if the time pressure was so bad that we needed to move to the next scene or just something needed to be highlighted or reset and then just just move on. And they, you're dealing with fundamentally very bright people who have spent their lives in front of cameras. They do get it. They are all mini actors in their own ways. What's lovely about this, though, is I'm not asking them to advertise a watch or petrol or a tyre company. I'm asking them to talk about themselves. What was lovely was even seeing somebody who's as normally private as Mika open up, you know, and Mika talking about his head injury. I mean, I just, I, I just, anyone who hears that story, I just challenge you not to crack up and cry. It's just the worst office story. And, uh, I mean, I remember Professor Sid Watkins telling me that, um, you know, he was trackside with his anesthetist, and they cut the tracheostomy. Otherwise, Mika was going to die. He wasn't breathing. And they got the, the tube down, and uh, they scanned him, and they were absolutely terrified. You just, you, you can't know. You can't know how bad it's going to be. And for that guy, not just <laughs> to come back as a quick driver, but to win two championships, arguably just miss out on the third through no fault of their own. It, it, that's just an insane story, isn't it? And all of this resonates because what are we really trying to say, all of us? We're trying to say we hope Michael comes back. Mm. Yeah, I mean, th- this 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 was really uh, emotional. I mean, I-, I thought Senna was emotional. This one was extremely emotional. You know, Mick Ackerman, Felipe Massa, Tom Christensen, and um, Michelle Walton, as we said, all together. Um, and you know the fifth person the, the presence is there and it, it's it's very heavy hitting it, it's it's well worth a watch if you haven't seen it um i think we've got to talk about your latest project don't we which is called lucky um and it's about well probably the the most could we even argue the most influential uh, influential man in the sport that we are we love and that's bernie um can you just explain this concept of, of this series for our listeners? Mm, so, um, I grew up watching Bernie on TV. And, uh, you know, he is the boss. <laughs> he certainly was when I was a kid, just always the boss. Man of very few words. Occasionally come on TV, say something usually a little bit impish, vanish. Everyone around him is saying, you know, this is the man. If you want something done in Formula One, just ask him. If he wants it done, it will happen. So a man of total power, not even partial power. And um, <clears throat> and then, you know, he, I mean, he's 100% um, why we got the archive we got with Senna. It would have been a very different movie without archive. And he was the man who said yes. I've got to be honest. I'd heard all of this. No, he'll always say no. He'll always say no. Um, he just said yes all the way through. And you know, when you have a, it's the best way of putting it. 
I'd heard so much that was terrifying about him. And I'm not saying that, you know, he's a fearful person or anything, but, you know, you have to respect him. He's a tough man. But I always felt I had a really nice chemistry with him. Like, I could talk to him. I've never felt that I was slightly on edge or performing. You know, I always felt that if I sent him an email, it's amazing at responding to those because he doesn't he doesn't do email, but his assistants would always get the email, print it for him. He would read it. He would make a response. You would get an email back, and usually very quickly. And um, so actually, he came to the Heroes premiere. He came with Jean Todd. That was incredible. He seated them. So it was, it, and it was lovely, and I... I, you know, thanked him for that because, you know, the the production, you know, it didn't get the traction because there really wasn't a studio behind it. I think it should have done, but um, he loved the movie. And uh, I just thought that summer, you know, that was the first thing I directed and you just never know. I mean, it could have been a real pudding that it really could have been. You know, loads of people think they can direct and uh, it's a bit more to it, I think, than, than meets the eye. And uh I just thought there's a big story about Formula One that hasn't been told, which is how it happened. You know, how did a bunch of baby rich amateurs who used to turn up on, sometimes on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays, they used to start the Grand Prix whenever the organisers felt they were fit. The rules, you know, the rules were the rules. The, you know, sometimes the rules were met. The safety was a joke. And it really was amateur hour with with a bunch of, if you like, gallant men for the most part. And I think it, you know, modern Formula One happened in the shadow of the Second World War. So it was given the cloak of respectability, even though it was really a death machine. And, you know, in the context of having streets bombed, people go off and never come back. I guess they felt the losses were acceptable, just quite simply. Oh, you know, he died in this race. How terrible. When's the next race? You know, that was that's almost the conversation. And as Bernie tells you in the first episode, the teams raced in their national colours. So there's a kind of subtext of war in, in post-war motor racing as well. You know, the Italians, you know, whether it was an Alfa Romeo or a Ferrari, it was red. It wasn't, you know, it, it, that was the national team, if you like. They were the national team. You had the Spitfires and the Hurricanes, but they were both camouflaged with the kind of, you know, um, uh, with the British insignia on the side. So I I thought to myself, there's a guy, only one guy, who is alive, who can tell this story. And his own story is so enmeshed in the story of Formula One. It's so much a part of Formula One. You know, I wonder if he'll do it. One thing I have got to know about Bernie, and uh, it's, um, he's he's kind of incredible like this. He, um, he doesn't take long to make decisions. If he says he's going to do something, he'll do something. And if he can't do it, he won't do it. And he'll say no. There isn't a kind of, I'll give you a call in 63 minutes once I consider it. He, he, and by the way, that's a function of his brain. He is scary bright, you know. Um, 
and so he, his calculation is done in kind of in real time. And anyway, I went to see him and uh, I said, look, I want to make this documentary series about you. I think it's going to be eight parts. It's going to be eight times one out. It's going to be massive. It's going to be everything. We're going to start at the beginning, we're going to end when you leave. And, um, you know, we'll work out how to do the archive deal and all the rest of it. But I think there's genuine interest in this. And I think also, if you look at, if you like, the renaissance of Formula One, it's, you know, apparent new headroads into America. Yeah, apparent new um, inroads into America. If you look at, um, you know, the viewing figures, the demographic shift. For me, I was trying to say, it's it's a little like froth on a beer. You, you know, it's wonderful. It, it's great. It's flavorful. It's very easy. But the thing is that really to appreciate that froth, you probably ought to set the Guinness up underneath. And I think that's what we were trying to do. And I think we can connect the fans with the whole story, if you like. Of course, told partially in the way that we can tell it in six and a half hours. I think if you can tell that story, uh, you're very connected. Suddenly you see Lewis and Max maybe in a different way. You see Ferrari in a different way. You kind of feel where Red Bull kind of came from, how late they came into the story, if you like, and therefore how much they've achieved in such a short period of time. If you can do that, but you do need the right storyteller. And so anyway, he looked at me and said... He does this thing with his eyes. It is kind of incredible. Not squints, but does this thing. He doesn't look at you, looks away from you, and it's like he's done it. And he turned around and said, if you do it, it'll be very good, won't it? I said, yeah, well, hope so. <laughs> and he shook my hands. And um, once he shakes your hand, that's it. You know you know it's going to happen. And as I've said in the past, I mean, COVID happened. Um, very difficult time for all of us. What none of us knew was obviously Fabiana was pregnant. He went to Brazil. Then I think the pandemic really hit Brazil. So he moved to Switzerland. Ace was born. But in the latter part of the summer, he gave me a call and said, look, I'm ready. Let's do it. And what it had meant, it's another one of those sort of mini miracles, really, because actually had he said to me on October the 8th when he said he wanted to do the show, right, let's get going on the 1st of November, I don't think I would have quite had enough time. It wasn't completely hatched. In my mind, I could see bits of it. But the kind of inductive moment, if you like, is when I wrote the first proper treatment. And it's a bit like Senna, actually. I, I looked at the treatment for Lucky. It's three pages long. Treatment is the screenwriting equivalent of a synopsis. They're just called treatments for whatever reason. And um, it's uncanny. It said Bernie will be shot with his white shirt, his white goatee, white hair, tanned face, blue eyes on a very white background. The effect will be as if he's talking to you from another world. This will be intercut with long archive sequences where Bernie will be used in voiceover only, always coming back to him for an emotional response. And at that point, I thought we'd use graphics because they are useful. Sometimes you should just give people facts. It just helps you with the pacing. But the, the, the use of animation came much, much later. So he gave me a call in the early autumn and said, look, I'm in Switzerland. Do you want to come out? There was no vaccine. He was 89. Um, you know, 
had I come out of London, which was just coming out of uh, that first horrible lockdown um, and given him COVID, I don't think I'd have been too proud of myself. So I mm. found a chalet to rent, which by chance wasn't actually too far. It's a 10 minute walk from this lovely little hotel he owns. Um, I'd never been to the Ritzy Stad before in my life, but um, I'd certainly seen the film The Pink Panther and <laughs> knew what to expect. And um, I used to meet him outside, socially distanced. He has an outdoor area at his hotel and the beautifully warm autumn, actually. Uh, sun was gorgeous, so we'd sit a couple of metres apart and talk every morning for 10 days whilst I self-isolated. And we set up the set in a room at the hotel, in, in some ways very simple. And the device that we use is called an Teratron, which is effectively a horizontal periscope. And it allows the interviewer, without making eye contact, to look as if he's making direct eye contact through a system of sort of slightly haloed mirrors. And the effect you can see is that the subject is talking directly into your soul. They're looking right at you when they speak. And he's very powerful. He's got very piercing eyes. And he's very quietly spoken. And if you think about it, you've got to try to mix a man who's quietly spoken with very loud engine noises or very loud music. And what's amazing about Bernie, though, is, you know, I, a couple of people I won't mention, but, you know, said, ah, oh, it's not going to work. You know, you'll never get him to say anything and his sentences will always be a little bit clipped and this, that and the other. But they were wrong. You know, they were wrong. I think to approach your subject in a sympathetic and willing way, you know, it's, it's, it's an, an knowledgeable way, by the way, is a really important thing in life. And he was constantly testing me. Um, and, uh, you know, I was telling Chris this, that um, I really wanted him to talk about the South African Grand Prix in 1981. Why? Why did Formula One go there at the height of the FISA Focal War? And I, we've got it all in outtakes, but he looked at me as if I was literally speaking a different language and said, did we go there? I said, you did go there. And he said, why did we do that then? And I said, well, I think you were trying to make a point. Um, he said, would I be making a point to? And I said, I think you're making a point to Jean-Marie Balestre. And he said, oh, he said, oh, yeah, he said, it was a technical problem. I don't know what it was. I said, tyres. He said, well, what technical problem would we have with tyres? I said, Goodyear withdrew. You didn't have tyres. He said, well, how would we possibly get around that? And I said, you, you had tyres. And I said, he said, did we? What tyres were they? And I said, Avon tyres. And he went, oh, it's all come back to me. <laughs> oh, <wow>. Of course. <laughs> He's not going to give you this unless you know what you're asking. And of course, what am I really asking? I'm asking him to tell the story of... You can't, with him, he doesn't jab at his opponents. They're always knockout blows. And that's what South Africa 81 is. It's a knockout blow. Because what's happened is Argentina has been cancelled by the FIA, by FISA. You know, FISA think they run the sport. FISA tell people what to do. They can't get nine cars to go to Argentina. Why? Because they don't, they don't know how you book a 747. They don't know how you book a trailer to get you to the 747. 
they don't know what the paperwork is. What's a carnet? Do you think Jean-Marie Ballest knew what a carnet is? Do you think Bernie Eccleston knew what a carnet was? Do you think Jean-Marie Ballest knows the name of the promoter, where he lives, what his wife's name is, what their kids are? Do you think he did? I don't think so. So what Bernie demonstrated was, you make the rules, I make the racing, and I know every molecule there is of racing. I used to race cars, then I used to manage drivers, then I ran a team, my friend. You know, I know what a gasket is. I know what engines are made of. I know what a tire costs. I know a shitty tire. I know what a suspension spring looks like. I know what an engineer is. You don't know any of them. That's the genius of this man. And it kills me how so many people go into organizations with some kind of theoretical management knowledge, go into organizations which are highly complex structures, start pulling levers here, there, and everywhere, and expect positive change. And that should tell you something about maybe the world we live in today and how politics works and how it's very easy to promise people very big things in a sweeping way. But tell me, if Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss's idea that there was just a fundamental pair of levers you could just pull on a Monday and bring us out of this mess, do you not think Corbyn would have spotted that? And the most stupid person in the world would spot. If there's an obvious, you know, like a James Bond danger button, <laughs> press this button and it will all blow up or not. Life's not like that. And I think this is the thing that people do not understand about the genius of Bernie. His understanding of everything is molecular. And his vision, his peripheral vision, is it's more than 180 degrees. He's got like a 270-degree vision. So he moves his head very little to do a 360, 45 degrees either way, and he can see everything. And it's there all the time. And that's how you build this. And why am I boring you with this? Because what he's able to do then is if you change a variable in the sport, whatever it is, he can work out what that butterfly effect will do in the whole of the sport. So I, I'll give you another example. When we were doing Grand Prix Driver, I went to see him about this. He was still running Formula One at the time. And I really, really, I was hoping he'd say yes to us. And he was very equivocal. And he would only let me do it if I did it about one driver, not even two drivers in the same team, would have to focus on the team. I gave him a bunch of hypothetical scenarios by which I said, could we leave our cameras running if, say, it's pouring with rain, and the driver's got nothing to do, and he wanders out into the pit lane and starts playing football with the mechanics, and another driver joins him, and they just kick a ball. Can I film that? He said, no. So why wouldn't I be able to film that? And he said, you can't. Two drivers. I said, but what's wrong with two drivers? And he said, no, don't want them. You know, I've thought about this so many times. Sadly, I'm cursed with a horribly good memory, so I can sit and explore these things over and over again. You know what it was about? <clears throat> it's about power. He understands that Formula One as a circus is effectively a group of power bases that have to be kept together. And they're all antagonistic. Don't let the pseudo-coherence and smiling 
and that pseudo camaraderie fool you, you know? People leave teams to go to other teams. And where you have a closed system, think of Formula One as a closed system, it's not an open system. So Lewis, for example, if he left Mercedes, wouldn't be leaving Mercedes to go and go to NASA. He'd leave Mercedes to go to another team. So you're in a system which makes you minus one, but makes your direct competitor plus one. So everything you lose is doubled. So it amplifies the intensity of the competition whether it's tires or engines, whether it's drivers or sponsors, you know, your multi-million dollar sponsor very rarely leaves you to go and sponsor netball, more likely to go to another team mm. or another series. And what I realized about him was he felt and he feels that the drivers have enough of a power base. They have their social media platforms. They have their direct access through Instagram or Twitter or whatever or Facebook to their millions of fans, and they can get their messages across very directly. And what I realized he was saying, not at the time, by the way, I was furious at the time he said no, <laughs> but what I've realized since I got to know him was that he looked into the crystal ball and he could see it becoming a massive success. He could, you know, we would have done a good job, I think, with our show. I think we did a good job with it as far as it went. But I think he looked into that crystal ball and went, hmm, do I want these guys to have any more power? Any more direct communication? Yeah, I thought would market the show better. But I don't want them to have that because I think they're powerful enough. I think they get enough money. And you can see where this is going. And and on that, obviously, he's he's so used to having so much power and influence. So what, how was it working with him? And you know, how much influence did he have in the project? How much did he steer things? Or, you know, what was it? Yeah, what was at play there? So this is the sort of shocking bit about this. And he's a brilliant poker player. Brilliant poker players put all the pressure on you. <laughs> Take any of the pressure. So in his classic benign but utterly um thought through way, he said, nothing's off limits. Let's go. And I said, so you want some form of creative control? I said, no, I'll, I'll sign the clearance when we're done. He did. That was it. No editorial control. Um, very clear, no financial input at all, except he did feed me at his rather ritzy hotel now and again with the crew. I think we we're allowed to accept that. But that, that was it. I mean, no control, nothing off nothing off topic. In episode eight, we do both trials. Um talks about his divorce, talks about being fired, talks about the birth of the girls, talks about Savitsa, um, talks about his marriage, which I still scratch my, the first marriage, I still scratch my head at about how kind of, you know, it came second to work. <laughs> Everything else. So no, no control at all. And I think that's, that's what makes, it, it, it was like doing Senna again in a way, all heroes. You know, I take this stuff very seriously. And... You know, I've got a lot of flack for it from some people, you know, on the usual sort of, you know, the Twitter, Instagram access, you know, the usual, how can you make the show about this racist? And if it, it, Do I look white to you? No. I mean, you think I'd make a show about racists? You know, when I was a kid, the National Front used to distribute their newspapers outside Marks and Spencers. I was too naive to even understand why when I was 10 years old, why it was marked and spent. Of course, I realize that now. You know, um, we grew up with in-your-face racism. You really think I was going to platform him if I thought he was a racist. He hasn't got a racist bone in his body. You know, and I think the the thing about 
Bernie is he will say things that are controversial at times, and I scratch my head as to why. I mean, presumably there's some rhyme, reason, or method there, but it's something, you know, that I find unfathomable. But give you a very simple example. In the Terry Lovell book, um, Bernie's Game, there's a description of him going to parties with friends in the 1950s. So he would have been in his 20s. And they said he had a habit, uh, maybe habit's too strong a word, but occasionally he would do something sort of inexplicable, like they'd be passing a tray of nuts round, and he would just slam the tray. And nuts would fly everywhere. And Terry Lovell's not an idiot. He's put that description in, that story in for a reason. And I think what's he trying to say? Is he saying that this man likes to sometimes just flip the horizon? Does he like to create some form of diversion or chaos? Maybe. You know, I I can't answer everything in this documentary. I just can't. But we do ask him straight, are you anti-Semitic? Do you have... Do you want to talk about that? Anti-Semitism, tell me about anti-Semitism, racism. And he tells you straight, I am not anti-Semitic. I've never been racist. You know, and, um, you know, to his credit, after that stupid Sunday Times article in 2009, uh, you know, he published a letter of absolute apology in the Jewish Chronicle, and so he should. You know, Stephen Pollard's going to be, he must be one of the best editors breathing air at the moment, and he published it. He criticised Bernie at the time, he published a letter. Now, if he does that, who am I? You know, we'll, we'll tell the stories as they stand, but we didn't run away from any of the stories. We just had to create a coherent narrative, which is why we couldn't put, like with Senate, every story in. Well, you you have told some incredible stories, uh, and the uh, the characters like Bernie and, and Ayrton, obviously. Um, but of the current generation, who do you think could tell the best story in the future? Who could you see yourself writing uh, Yeah, writing another documentary about? Not necessarily the current generation, but the more modern generation. We've obviously yeah, got yeah, to... Yeah, no, <laughs> sure. Listen, I've got to tell you, there's a story about Alonso, which my opinion has really never been told, not properly. Um, what is he? Just a handful away from five titles. He's, uh, yeah, he's twelve points, I think, totally. Yeah, across those. Yeah, we, I mean, we did the sums as well. We looked at that, and it's like and twelve points in the modern system as well. That's oh, exactly. And um, he's quick and intelligent. There's for, for me. There's the difference between say Alonso and Senna is um, just qualifying. Speed. I think Alonso is the first to admit, you know, maybe that's the one thing he he isn't maybe the fastest over one lap, but that kind of overall race, the the kind of relentlessness of his driving, the bravery of his driving, uh, you know, his passion. There's a there's a glorious story actually somebody told me about when he won his first championship in Brazil. So it's 2005, he's won, he's world champion, and he's on a British Airways jet flying back from uh, Sao Paulo. And I've been on that plane, and uh, <laughs> the the story is the captain tells uh, the passengers, we've got 
Fernando Alonso on board. Congratulations to him for becoming the uh, youngest ever Formula One world champion. And then uh, apparently the chief steward comes up to him. He's in business uh, and says, look, you know, we actually have a, we have a, a bed uh, free and first. Would you like to come up? And he says, no, I, I don't. My dad's here. If you've got two, I'll come. Otherwise, I'm good. I love that story. It just, you know, it's like, hmm. by the way, I mean, I think I'd be the same if I was with my mum on the plane or my son or my wife. I wouldn't, but it's just, it just tells you something. It's very instructive, I think. And I think we have a lot of difficulty with him. I don't think everything he did was good or right. Sometimes I think he's been oversensitive and, you know, he's allowed himself to be really super prickly where actually some decent counsel would have seen him do something. But I think it's very unfair with this fantastic retrospectoscope that we all use in our analytical skills to turn around and go, well, you know, you did the wrong thing by going there. You did the wrong well, Yeah, right. The guy, he's super bright. He will have analysed absolutely everything. His decisions are his decisions and he stands by them. Maybe it's from our perspective where we feel this need to judge the best by statistics, which I believe become increasingly meaning meaningless as, as the sport goes on. I mean, when I saw Senna, if you had a 70% reliability record, but, you know, you basically finished 11 races, that magical 11 races or 12 races. That was a bloody good season if there were just, you know, four times that you had a mechanic. And now, you know, you, you, what was that stat about Michael at one point? He did something like 52 races without a mechanical. Yeah, I've four straight seasons for Santa. 40% of his career without a mechanical. It's just a dream. So when you're living in this era of... When you're living in this era of such a high level of engineering, and also just look at telemetry, feedback, you know, they, yes, okay, engineers are not allowed to make a change to the car directly. So what they do is they put every single possible control on that steering wheel and tell the driver to do it. You know, I, I'll tell you one rule I would love. I would love in Formula One, it would be, there is no communication at all except with a pit board from the engineers to the drivers. The driver can feedback all the way through, no problem. But the engineers are only allowed to communicate with the driver using pit boards. They can have three places on the circuit if they want them. So it's not like, you know, it's every single lap. They can have three guys and one in each sector. I would, I God, you'd see the wheat from the chaff then. Mm. You know, and also I think if you take away a lot of the things that the drivers are having to do, which are technical, then I think the input becomes more pure driver. You know, if you're saying, right, move to setting six, da-da-da-da-da, change of brake bias, you're basically feeding this to someone then I think you are distracting them, no matter how perfect that organism is. I think just remove that level of information. You'll also you'll see more mistakes, which means the racing will become better. You bring intelligence into it, but not IQ intelligence, a kind of cunning racing intelligence. You bring that back into it, and the, the you know the proportion of the driver to the engineering will just go up, and you will. I promise you, you'll see it in the racing. Yeah, you'll it, see it, it in the racing. 
It, do, it does feel like they've tried it over the years to try and get um, less communication. And I mean, I, I think Alonso would be fascinating. We we obviously know that he's an incredible driver. I think there's some incredible stories off the track as well and stories we don't really know what happened that I would love to know. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure anyone will ever know uh, Alonso's involvement in some of the things, but um, it, it brings me to uh, our final question. Now, Manish, I know you're going to have an amazing answer to this one. Um, and we ask every, every guest uh, that comes on the show um, this, this very special question. Now, at the Formula Nerds, we've built, we've constructed a motorsport time machine. It could go backwards in time, it could go forwards in time, it could go to any dimension of motorsport. Now, you're allowed to take a ride in it today. Where are you going to go in motorsport any time any 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 uh, type of motorsport and, and, and why? That's so easy to answer this one, actually. Um, I'd go to Silverstone in 1992, um, the British Grand Prix. Um, I'd go to, I think it's five laps before the end of the race. I had a friend I was at university with, and his first job was selling advertising. I think it was for Motorsport Magazine. So he got two tickets for us to go, and we were guests of Motorsport, the height of Mansellmania. And we were sitting, we, 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 we had a just amazing view of the race from just behind the pits, right at the entry to the pit lane at Silverstone. And I don't know if you remember, Senna ran out of fuel. And it's the closest I've ever actually been to him, never spoke to him in my life. But I like to kid myself of this, and I think this is a bit of a, I'm afraid, a false memory or a memory implant. But the facts are this. He stopped. The crowd were jeering because they were not motor racing fans who kept turned up that day. That was really at the height of kind of Mansellmania and uh, just anyone who just wanted to wave a Union Jack at any sport. And I remember a lot of the BRDC were actually very uncomfortable with the atmosphere there at the time as well. Um, but, but Senna walked through the pit lane, came in, had his helmet in his hands, and he must have been about three meters away from me, if that. I was on a slightly higher level. I love to kid myself, and I know I definitely didn't call out his name, but I love to kid myself that we made eye contact for a second and that I shrugged. And he shrugged back. So if I had a pit lane, I mean, if you gave me your time machine, I'd just love to have that moment back and just, just to remember it actually as it was, as opposed to how I think I remember it. That, that would be my moment. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that, that's incredible from, from that moment to, to the creation of, of the Senna film. Um, Manish, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. I've really enjoyed it. I've loved the stories. I mean, I, I worry that we could, we should have booked out a whole evening, um, to do this podcast. It, oh, it, I, we could have spoken. There's so many other things as well, but, um, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I've loved it. Absolutely. I'm sure our listeners will too. So um, just just for the people that want to watch um, Lucky, how can they watch it? Where is it? And um, yeah, let, let them know. A few people have had a bit of a headache over this. It's on a new platform 
Discovery Plus. Um, there are various ways of getting it free. So if you've got BT Sport, if you've got certain versions of Sky, you just have to register for it. Otherwise, um, you have to sign up for it. There is a free trial. I won't say anything else. Um, there is a free trial, so you can get on board and see that. And that's that's where it is in England. In um, Europe, a lot of Europe, DAZN have got... Uh, in Latin America, it's Disney ESPN, but um, we hope to be making a very exciting bunch of announcements about France, Australia, New Zealand, and the United States. That's a particularly exciting announcement in the next few weeks. So watch your space. And thank awesome. you for the word of mouth. No problem. There'll be links um, to watch all of these in, in our show notes. So if you're listening, just go into those and uh, click on them, depending on where you are. And um, we'll update those, managed when uh, you have your exciting announcements. But um, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure again. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out and away we go. Podcast Network.